In today's podcast, I want to talk about a fairly unique but not uncommon set of challenges faced by candidates who join McKinsey, BCG and Bain after spending a few years or many years at the so-called tier 2 firms. And I don't mean tier 2 in a derogatory way, I'm simply using it to distinguish between firms that are, you know, the McKinsey's, the Bain's of the world, BCG's, and the firms that are not in that group for whatever reason. Uh, and I don't want to get into the debate about why they're not in that group. The fact is, the quality of the work is different. And I think one of the biggest challenges with clients who make this transition is they're not sure what to expect. And obviously, you know, working hard, being diligent, doing the preparation to join from Deloitte to get into a um, BCG or a McKinsey is an achievement in itself and is something candidates and clients should be proud of. You know, you've worked hard, you've put in the hours, you've gone through the, you know, case interview process and you've done well so you should be proud of that accomplishment and of course because of the effort you've put in you're obviously worried that um, you may not make it so what I see happening with even candidates we place is they go through this sort of flurry of trying to prepare in advance so that when they do arrive on their first day at McKinsey on a project they are ready to hit the ground running and I think the first piece of advice I'm going to give you is that there's nothing you can do beforehand to prepare you. I always tell candidates, even candidates who retain us to help them once they get in, don't worry about doing things before and get a break, take a long vacation, because there's nothing you can do beforehand. It's about being able to respond and adjust and be flexible once you join the firm. But what I do notice is that most candidates tend to be worried about the technical elements. So when they talk to us and we place them and they're trying to figure out what they can do before and they, they seem to be concerned about storyboarding, developing hypotheses, learning how to build models and so on. And one thing I point out to them is that that's great, but I would recommend you cannot learn that beforehand, so leave that for the consulting firm. And then I point out beyond that, beyond leaving it for later, that's not the thing you have to worry about. You know, there are three elements you've got to, to build yeah, or, or develop. The technical skills will come, so don't worry about it. Consulting firms are good at teaching that, and I do believe those skills are best taught on a project or engagement, and you know, there's no reason uh, to learn it beforehand, because no matter how much exposure you have, you're not going to learn it as well than if you were on a project. The second element is obviously having the right kind of, you know, collegial culture. And even then, that's not the most important thing because, you know, criminals have a collegial culture. They help each other. So obviously, you know, a collegial culture can exist in firms that have very poor values as well. The third element, which is very important, is values. And, and you know that firms consulting is a very big believer in having the right values. It's one of our most important screening criteria when we select candidates and when we, in, at all levels. And a lot of people fail to understand why values play such a big role in derailing your career. So what I wanted to do in this podcast was to provide two examples of actual candidates we've had clients who we've placed from a tier two firm into a McKinsey or a BCG and explain how values derailed, or I wouldn't say completely derailed, but I would say hurt their careers. And this gives you an understanding of why I say that when you are transitioning from a tier two firm into one of the so-called tier one firms, it's the misinterpretation of the values or an inability to understand the difference in the values that does sometimes betray your career ambitions. And you need to be aware of this. 
In the first example, I'm going to talk about a client we placed from Deloitte into McKinsey. A nice uh, guy, um, you know, very, very ambitious, very disciplined, very diligent. And I think, you know, obviously he deserved to, to make that transition. He was a he was someone who really tried hard. And I think he, he you know, he was a someone who wasn't just looking to join a top management consulting firm the salary he wanted to make an impact he was you know, proud of the way he had built his career and so on and he had he'd done well to move across and he had the same kind of um, transitioning challenges most candidates had you know he was very concerned about the storyboarding and so on and I remember telling him don't worry about those things those are not the things you have to worry about you need to make sure you understand the expectations and the value system of value system of the partners with whom you are working and respond to that and I don't think he ever understood that. He, in fact, he never understood that. Let me give you an example of what he did to um, hurt his career. And it did hurt his career. I mean, we've had many discussions together about this. You know, whenever something goes wrong, he always contacts me and say, Michael, what do I do now? Have I created such a bad problem that I cannot fix it? And how do I fix it if it is you know, fixable? So this is what happened to him. He joined McKinsey. And it just so happened, this was quite recent as well, that um, that particular office was going through a period of reduced work. So it wasn't as if they were retrenching people and you know, getting rid of them. They weren't aggressively enforcing up and out, but they were taking a lot of new associates and putting them on to internal uh, projects, research projects, and you know programs that were running for the Global Institute and the Quarterly, and so on. So this guy was put onto these internal projects, and he was on an internal project for about I think it was two months before things started going a little bit pear-shaped. I think for the first month he didn't mind because he could get a feel of the firm. By the second month, I think he was concerned because in his culture in Deloitte, one of the metrics that he was measured on was billability. That is the amount of hours that he spent on billable work for clients versus the amount of hours that he was not spending on billable work. So despite what McKinsey had told him, that he's not being measured on billability, this still bothered him. And he went down and sat down with a partner for whom he was doing the project, the internal project, and explained that, you know what, he, I, his words, you know, I'm concerned about the billability issue, so, um, you know, what can I do about it? And the partner told him, this is what he told me, the partner told him that, look, don't worry about it, uh, we're not measuring your billability, you don't have to worry about that, just f do the best work you can for the things we assign you to, it's ours, we take responsibility for what we assign you to, so it's nothing to do with you. He did that for about, I think, two weeks. Then he went to a different partner and had the same discussion saying, look, you know what, I'm still concerned about my billability. I spoke to another partner and I'm not sure that, you know, you understood my concern. The second partner told him the same thing. You know what, um, you need to, don't worry about it. I can understand your concerns, but again, you're not measured on billability. You should pay more attention to the project you're working on because it is important to the firm and we would like you to see that through. So in fact, because it's such a large project, you're not going to be on any you know, client-facing roles for at least another maybe four months until we see this through because it's crucial to the firm. Now, after he spoke to the first partner, he did come to me and I said, look, don't do that. It's not a good idea. The partner, if the partner tells you you don't have to worry about it, you don't have to worry about it. But even before the partner told you that, you should know that McKinsey doesn't look at billability. So I'm not sure why you're bringing it up. He said, fine, I understand. After he spoke to the second partner, um, I told him, look, you know, I'm sure the second partner told you the same thing. At least now you know it's not, you know, at least now you know it's true. Billability is not important. So just let go. But then what he went and did is he went back to the first partner he spoke to 
and he brought it up again and this partner was obviously upset with him you know he was the feedback I got from the the candidate is that the partner was not happy and seemed a little bit um, annoyed that he would keep on bringing up the issue of billability and imagine in the eyes of the partner two things are happening here he's spoken to the guy once and told him not to worry about billability the guy ignores him goes and speaks to a different partner that's sort of a strike two for lack of a better word the guy then ignores that feedback and comes back to the partner. So the third time he's talking about billability. Now, if I was a partner, you know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, here's someone, I've told him not to worry about this. Three times he's brought it up. Either he's not listening to me, either he's unable to listen to anyone because he just can't comprehend what we're saying, or third, he just doesn't understand the culture and he doesn't understand what's important, so maybe he doesn't fit in here. Now, after that third discussion, the guy was very upset and came to me and said, you know what, Michael, I don't know what I've done, but the partner is upset with me. And I said, look, I can understand the partner is upset with you. If someone tells you not to worry about something, don't worry about it. You focus on what you ask them to worry about. If you get managed out, it has nothing to do with your billability. It has everything to do with your performance on the non-billable work and the way the economics of, the f- of that office is you know, working out. There's nothing you can do about it. You could be on a project and still be managed out. So, so billability doesn't drive things. You, And this is the thing this guy didn't understand. What was hurting his career, at least in those first few months, is not the technical elements of storyboarding and hypothesis development and the way he structures um, his analysis, but the fact that he came pre-wired from Deloitte, that billability was everything. And no matter what he heard, he'd listen to what a McKinsey partner was saying, he'd listen to what I was saying, as also a former partner, and he would ignore it, and it would be hard-coded into his head that billability was everything. And this is an example of how it's the soft elements that derail a lot of careers for tier two consultants. They're not willing to leave aside all those pre-configured or pre-prepared or whatever, predetermined assumptions and rules that govern firms like Accenture and Deloitte. You need to leave those things behind. And here, he was following a preconceived idea that led him into a lot of trouble. And this is a real story. It's not something we've manufactured. I'm pretty sure the person listening to this will, will understand who I'm talking about when they listen to this podcast, as I'm sure they will. But this is a very common example of how I see Tier 2 consultants derailing their careers, not because of technical or tangible stuff, but simple things, right? I'll give you another example of a female candidate we had once who worked for a boutique consulting firm, very small consulting firm, specializing in just one sector, and she joined Bain. Um, she came from she came from a school that is not known for placing uh, people into um, you know, consulting firms. So it wasn't as if, um, you know, the school was highly recognized and it had a lot of elitism and, you know, cachet attached to it. No, it was pretty much, you know, treated like, you know, people go there if they couldn't get more than a D average in their high school exams and so on. She was a good candidate, by the way. I believe she graduated first in her class. First in the class in a week school, nonetheless. And one of the things I pointed out to her is that because you come in from a the school that is not well-known and well-respected, irrespective of how the partners treat you, you have to build relationships with your colleagues, the analysts and the senior associate consultants and so on, right? 
And that's your responsibility to do, to do that. Yes, a partner may have hired you, may have liked you, and he interviewed you, but remember, your colleagues did not interview you. And despite what all consulting firms say, that you know they treat you the same when you, when you come in, you've got to constantly prove yourself to your colleagues, because your colleagues only know you came from this school, they don't know much about you, they know a partner hired you, and that's it. That's it. And even though you went through the formal recruitment process, you're constantly proving yourself. Consulting is about constantly demonstrating your competencies. Now, she did three things that I think hurt her quite badly here. I think the first one is that I remember getting a message from her at 11.30 p.m. at night telling me, Michael, my colleagues, my, my peer, so there's another analyst in the team working on something completely different from her stream of work, but he wanted access to her PowerPoint slides to see what she was doing because he's not he wasn't that clued up in terms of how to build storyboards and structures and so on. And I told her, look, you shouldn't even be asking me this question. In management consulting, you always share work. It's not even open for debate. As far as I'm concerned, we should not be having this discussion. You share work liberally. If a colleague wants help, you give him whatever help he needs. And her response to me was that, well, if I share the work with him, he's going to get credit for my work. And then I pointed out to her, if you don't share your work with him, you're not going to get credit for anything. And there's no proof that he was going to steal your work. All the story is just going to end at, you know, let's call her Susan, did not share work with Colin when he needed it to help him. That's where the story is going to end. Right, so by not sharing it, you can never prove he, he could have you know, taken it and not given you credit for it in the first place. And she was apprehensive to share it. And you know, the next day she told me that you know, although I was quite forceful with her, she she didn't say everything with him. And obviously that hurt her relationships with her colleagues because works you know, word spreads quickly. You know, here's a, a lady, she doesn't want to share work. She's finished it. She's told everyone she's finished it. She's been showing it around to all the partners, but she's not willing to send us copies of it. It's, it's not the right culture. It's, it's definitely hurting. And the, her, her feedback to me was that in her previous firm, this happened to her a lot whereby the manager used to take her work and show it to the partner and get all the credit. And I said, look, that... I'm not saying it didn't happen. Obviously, it happens. It happens to everyone. But you cannot transplant those symptoms into Bain. I'm not saying it won't happen, but you cannot. You have to give your, your colleagues the benefit of, your, of the doubt. You, you come from a school that's not unknown, but not, uh, slightly weak. You've got to prove that you're a team player. It's okay if Colin says, you know what, I built the slides myself, as long as he doesn't take credit for your work, as long as he doesn't present your work unchanged and say, you know what, I did this all by myself, right? But if he's using your work to help him with his work, that's what management consulting is about. You know, you have to work at these unified teams. The second thing she did, which I, I have cautioned her against repeatedly, and I, and I wonder, because she, she was one of the clients we've had, where I told her, don't, don't you know? Um, f don't hesitate to share things with me. If you have a fear about something, if you're concerned about something, bring it up. So we actually speak on Skype quite a lot. I mean, even today, I hear from her at least once a day from Skype on Skype. And I told her, don't share your fears with partners. Partners hire you because they feel you are strong enough to do the work. And I pointed out to her, yes, this partner is friendly to you, but do not confuse friendliness with personal. There's a wide gulf. It's called the Atlantic Ocean that separates them. You be friendly with a partner, but you don't be personal with them. 
So yeah, he may send you some you know nice emails with little smiley faces at the end and so on. But I, I've seen the emails. He's being professional. He's not flirting with you. He's just trying to. My take on the situation was that he knew she came from a school that was. N- you know, not well recognized in the firm. He needed to bring her into the fold. So he was trying to reduce the the, the gulf between partner and analyst to to make her feel that she could approach him, but on professional issues. And what this uh, analyst did, and and you know, I can understand why she did it, but it doesn't mean it make it right. Is she started sharing with him her fears about you know how she's not sure about how to do the work and she's struggling to do it. She has sleepless nights. You know, just a whole laundry list of paranoia. And obviously that doesn't go well because you know, if a partner feels there's someone on a project that is not able to handle the pressure and could affect the outcome of both the quality of analysis, the impacted client and team dynamics, the partner has to take action. He has a legal obligation. People forget that partners have tenure. They are the only real employees of an organization. Everyone else has no tenure. They can leave at any given time. Right? So... Um, the partner obviously had to take some action and he put her onto a reduced role on the project, which is, you know, you you competing against all these other people from, which are roughly your age, they came from better schools, and then here you are trying to show you can go toe-to-toe against them and you're being put onto a reduced role. It's not going to help your image. It's not going to make people want to trust you with things. Even though I think the partner handled this quite well by not giving the reasons out, things things are obviously shared. I mean, he's got to have to share the reasons with the project manager. The project manager obviously has people in the team she trusts and she'll share it. So the word will come out very quickly. That was my opinion strike two. This issue about the boundaries between friendliness and personal is something that I've counseled this analyst not to cross. And I did tell her always, always not show emotion no matter what happens. They need to see you as cool, calm and collected. In fact, the example I gave is that I remember watching a Clint Eastwood movie once and he was sitting at a bar drinking whatever Clint Eastwood drinks and there was this gunfight going on around him and he was just sitting there having his whiskey, I'm guessing, and ordering more. And I think you know that's the kind of way you need to be as a consultant, especially when there are doubts about your you know ability to manage the pressure. So she attends a team building event and I think it was footballers. I don't know. It was something like um, table football or something. And it was pairs of two or pairs of one against one. It was it was a project team playing against a client and they were playing for some you know weird little trophy and so on. And first game, she played and she got eliminated without scoring a goal and she started crying. She fell on the floor and started crying. And I told her, look, you, you're just pressing all the wrong signals here to show that you are in control of who you are. And if you're not in control of who you are, you can't be in control of an, a, a project and you can't be in control of a team. Now, the, the, I think the slight tragedy here is, here is that while we do keep in touch on all these things, not, she doesn't always share things with me in real time. So this idea of not sharing, that was shared in real time with me. The idea of sharing her fears with the, with the partner, that was shared, I must be honest, a little bit late with me, four days after it happened. After she had done this, she saw a change in the partner's behavior and a project role was downgraded and then she decided to share it with me to see what happened. This idea about the emotional outburst, I think she knew she had crossed the line and she shared this with me two months after, not two months, I think it was two weeks after it happened, but it was, it felt like a long time for me. I was a bit surprised that it took so long. 
while the in the previous story, the McKinsey consultant, I think things are going well for him. It's also happening in real time, so maybe it will get worse. For in this case, it didn't end so well for this consultant. She, you know, she was moved to an admin role because the partner liked her a lot, but he didn't feel she could manage the stress of being in a project. I mean, he didn't say that to her directly, but you know what? That's what happened to her. She got moved on to an admin internal role where she still works for the firm, but she's no longer re dealing with... She's not She's not a consultant. You know, she's on the non-partner tenure track. She's busy helping with research in a more cushy role. And here are two great examples of people who... It wasn't the analysis that got them, because to be honest, both of these people were pretty damn sharp. I must be honest. I mean, they were amongst the, the sharpest people we've had in the program. But emotionally, they were amongst the, the, I think, the candidates who were not that mature to understand the importance of balancing wit with emotional intelligence. And it's a common problem, I see. Whenever I speak to candidates, I always got to stop them and say, hey, hold on a second. You do understand that what distinguishes Deloitte or whatever from McKinsey is not the analysis, it's the value system. You know, there are many brilliant people from Harvard and Stanford who don't get into McKinsey and end up at Deloitte and so on, but they don't end up being the same balanced executives when they leave 10 years later from both firms. But why is that? It's not the, the, the technical training, it's the value system that the firm imparts on you. And what I find is that when you move from a tier two firm to an elite firm, there's this mismatch in the wiring. And it's not a small thing. When people say, oh, I'll adjust, it's just the technical things I have to worry about, I always say, well, this is a train wreck waiting to happen. You need to understand the value system is what sets these firms apart. And they're not like intangible things. Here are two examples of value systems that crashed and burned. And it's important you understand that. These things don't play out, you know, in your mind. A mismatch in values plays out and has a tangible impact on your career. As always, I'll be happy to post any comments or response to any questions.